0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, a very brief introduction to the British Empire. This podcast is run by Uncomfortable Oxford, a student-led social enterprise that runs walking tours and public events in the city of Oxford. Today is our sixth episode, titled Conquest in Africa. My name is Paula Larson. I'm co-founder, co-director of Uncomfortable Oxford, and also a doctoral student in the history of medicine.
1: And my name is Olivia Durand. We are the other co-founder and co-director of Uncomfortable Oxford. And I'm very happy to be welcoming Harry Aldrich. Harry is a doctoral student in history at the University of Oxford, and her work focuses on the concept of political exile in Africa with um, special attention to Ghana and networks of Ghanaians in exile. So welcome,
2: Harry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Olivia and Paula. So can you give us a bit of an outline of what you're going to talk about today? So we're going to be thinking today about the British Empire and its relationship with Africa. So we're going to start off by contextualizing Africa geographically and historically, and then kind of move on to think about some of the concepts surrounding conquest of Africa and then reframe the narrative a little bit towards the end. So we should pretty much cover a variety of, uh, a variety of topics by the end of this. Okay, so to begin with, I'm going to lead you through a bit of an impromptu geography lesson. It's really important to contextualize Africa geographically before we go on to think about it historically. When we think about maps, we often don't think about them critically, but they fundamentally shape the way in which we conceptualize and consider the world around us. And this is particularly important when we think about Africa. One of the most important things to remember is that no map is actually flawless. The Earth itself is roughly a sphere, and it's almost impossible to map a 3D object onto a 2D plane and not have any errors in proportion when in that attempt to translate those two things. Therefore, what we choose to prioritise when we map objects can tell us a lot about our attitude towards the rest of the world. So, Paula and Olivia, can you imagine for me in your heads, a map of the world right now? What does it look like to you? Mm,
1: Typical rectangle. Very often Europe is at the center, looks quite big. If you know that, you know, it's not that uh, large uh, in reality. Greenland is huge.
0: And it's also divided into the way that we currently look at the world. So if you think about a map, you have the west, as we call it, on the west hand side of it, and the east as it's called on the east. The Middle East is right in the middle of those two. So the, even the way that we conceptualize politics and culture today is, is embedded within that visual of the map itself.
2: Absolutely. So the way in which we actually conceptualize and think about the world around us is framed by the map itself. We use terms like Middle East, the West, East, when actually there's a completely arbitrary concepts that don't really map onto the globe, because the globe is just a ball hurtling through space. And it actually has no rooting in reality in that sense. And what you're describing to me there is the Mercator map. It's no surprise that you're describing that map because it's the most popular map projection in the world. It's been around for 448 years. So we've been using this map for an enormous amount of time, since before Antarctica was actually discovered. And it was drawn by Flemish cartographer Gerardus Mercator in 1569. Now, when we think about maps, it's really important to consider what their purpose is. And the purpose of the Mercator map, when it was drawn, was to be a navigational tool for sailors. So the way in which it's designed means that there are lots of parallel lines, and it's very easy to draw straight line uh, that so you can plot your course as you sail from Europe to the Americas, say. However, the Mercator map, as you were mentioning, Olivia, has many, many downsides. Consider the way in which Europe is in the middle, how big Europe is, and uh, the prioritisation of the Northern Hemisphere. What if I told you that on that map, Greenland is depicted as roughly the same size as Africa, when you see it visually, in reality, Africa is almost 14 times larger than Greenland. So it completely distorts the way we actually think about the continent of Africa completely. Uh, other examples of this is, so the Scandinavian countries on the Mercator map look larger than India, whereas actually India is three times the size. So all of these, all of these discrepancies Uh, You know, we can document them. I can talk about them to you here. But Google Maps, Yahoo, Bing, OpenStreetMaps, all of these platforms continue to use some version of the Mercator map. And it's the one that we all think about when we think about the world. So sum up, in short, that original globe map. Sailors love it. It's great for plotting courses across the sea, but it's really fundamentally bad at demonstrating to us the real size and shape of continents and countries in relation to each other. And I'm sure all those historical sailors
0: loved having Europe in the centre of the world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really key criticism of the Mercator map um, that leads me on to think about other versions of maps that have been created more recently. So in 1973, uh, a man called Arno Peters, who was a German filmmaker and journalist, he argued that the mercator projection was actively damaging in that it presented europe and north america as far larger and also in the center of the world uh, in a way that gave white nations a sense of supremacy over non-white nations and he came up with a different projection so he came up with a projection that's called now called the gall-peters projection and it aimed to show the correct sizes of countries relative to each other so there'll be an image of this attached to the this podcast that you'll be able to see for yourself. And when you look at this different projection, you can suddenly see that the global south figures so much more prominently than we think about in our day to day lives. And Europe and North America no longer dominate most of the image. Now, it's not flawless by any means. The map stretches the poles um, horizontally and some of the elements that are stretched in a way that can look really off putting when you first look at it. But this is partly because we're so unused to conceptualising Africa and the rest of the global south as proportionate to their actual size on the globe. Now, as you said, Paula, this is because the Mercator projection is a map made by Europe for Europe.
1: Was there any specific reason why Europeans decided to map Africa in this way and make it a much smaller continent
2: than it is in reality? So that was no accident. Europeans wanted to be able to prioritize and draw the maps and roads and towns that they knew existed in the Northern Hemisphere in detail onto their maps. But they didn't actually really know at this time what was inside Africa. So 19th century maps often depict Africa as mostly empty in comparison. There might be a few rivers, the Nile, the Niger Delta, maybe a few mountain ranges, but not much else. There's very little understanding of what Africa's internal landscape looks like at this time from Europeans. This shows, to a certain extent, how little interest Europeans had in Africa up to this point, Um, and they were far more interested in other areas of their empire, um, more lucrative areas in Asia. So why have I spent so much time talking about this? Maps are a key way in which we visually see representations of power. The power dynamics illustrated by the Mercator map are really stark with the West completely dominating any African representation. However, as I said at the beginning, these maps are also a useful way of illuminating European attitudes to the Global South. So these were maps, that were being used by contemporary British officials, helping to fuel their sense of superiority and entitlement when it came to the continent of Africa. On a much more basic level, it's also really important to emphasise how large a continent Africa actually is when we go on to consider how British officials approached it. When we talk about the history of this period, there simply is no one overarching narrative which encapsulates everything, and diversity will be something that comes up a lot. Just as an example, Africa spans about 5,000 miles from north to south, and it's made up of many different landscapes and environments, which each presented unique challenges to colonizers when attempting to partition the continent. So just to finish off the geography-heavy section of of this podcast, how many different types of ecosystems and terrains can you think, think of in Africa?
0: Ooh, um, there was definitely savanna grasslands and the Congo
2: rainforest. Absolutely, equatorial forest, definitely.
1: Uh, well, I know that there is the desert. The Sahara is a gigantic yeah. desert, and we often forget North Africa when we think about uh, Africa as a continent.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's often a focus on sub-Saharan Africa when we discuss it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: There are some mountains, some very high mountains.
2: Less and less absolutely. snow, but. There is some snow. <laughs> there is snow in Africa. And coastlines, there's a lot of coastlines. Yeah, so coast is really important, especially when we come to talk about the conquest of Africa. So, exactly, we've got all the ones you mentioned. We've also got river deltas that are really important when we think about the Nile. Uh, let's think about kind of the Ethiopian highlands, east central plateau, sort of it's known as the spine of Africa, so very elevated bit of uh, the landscape down the African, the centre of Africa. And also just general grass plains, high veldt, bush belt, enormous diversity. That's really the most important part. Um, and that's what I want you to take away from this. When we talk about the conquest of Africa, which is the title of this podcast, Africa is hugely diverse and there is no single Africa which was conquered. There are many, it's made up of many different peoples, landscapes and circumstances, which is what we're going to explore a little bit today.
0: So generally what time period are we thinking of here when we're talking
2: about the major conquest of Africa? Yeah, so conquest of Africa is is, is an interesting term. Um, and you might also have heard it called the partition of Africa or the scramble for Africa. These are terms that are often used by historians to essentially mean the invasion, occupation, division, and colonization of African territory by European powers during a really short period, between about 1881 and 1914. So that's about a 30-year period that we're discussing here today. However, what's really important to remember about this is that Britain and Europe had been interacting and informally colonizing colonizing Africa long before this 30-year period. So from the 1600s to the 1800s, Britain and the other European powers founded coastal outposts from which to trade and also as military bases all along the coast of Africa. From these, they could exert their economic and military influence over much of the coastal parts of Africa. British activity was mostly focused on the West African coast and was centred around the lucrative slave trade. Between 1562 and 1807, British ships carried up to 3 million people into slavery in the Americas. European traders grew rich on the profits, while the population of Africa's west coast was devastated. Britain abolished the transatlantic slave trade in 1807, and you'll often hear about this in uh, British histories of the period. However, changes within Britain, namely the Industrial Revolution, meant that slave trading no longer presented the best way of making money from Africa. It became clear that Britain could do better from extracting raw material from Africa, such as rubber and palm oil. In order to achieve this, labour which was being extracted in the form of slaves was needed within Africa itself. No longer trading in slaves across the seas, Britain began what is known as legitimate commerce buying raw products from African farmers, and selling manufactured goods from Britain back into these communities. The 1800s was also a time of exploration. It was at this point that famous individuals such as Dr. Livingstone and Henry Morton Stanley, made famous by stories centred around their encounter near Lake Tanganyika, with the iconic line, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, These individuals were striding across the African continent, intent on filling in some of those blanks on those Victoria maps that I mentioned at the beginning. These men were seeking knowledge of the geography of Africa, but they were also keen to learn how to control and conquer the environment, and by extension, its people. So the important takeaway from this is that Britain and Europe in general had been interacting with Africa for centuries at this point in a myriad of different ways. As late as the 1870s, only 10% of the continent was under direct European control. Algeria was held by France, the Cape Colony and Natal, both in modern South Africa, were held by Britain and Angola by Portugal. And yet by 1900, European nations had added almost 10 million square miles of Africa, one fifth of the landmass of the globe, to their overseas colonial possessions. By 1900, Europeans ruled more than 90% of the African continent. So, having said this, can either of you begin to name some of the African colonies that Britain acquired during this time? Well, many.
1: Uh, well, Zimbabwe, which was named Rhodesia at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Kenya. Uh, was Egypt like a sort of form of? colonial rule. Absolutely, we'll talk about that. It became a protectorate, absolutely. Um, Nigeria was a British colony and... um... What about you, Paula? Uh,
0: Tanzania, especially Zanzibar, was British controlled for a long point of time, especially just through the political negotiations with the Sultan. Also, Olivia said Zimbabwe, but Zambia was another one of the Rhodesias, historically, and Sierra Leone on the west coast was one of the major slave ports for the British for
2: hundreds of years. Absolutely. We already said Kenya, the, the Sudan, now North and South Sudan, uh, has been separated since then. Uh, there's Botswana, uh, South Africa, there's also Gambia, Malawi, and essentially what I'm trying to say is that it's an enormous amount of land. These countries actually accounted for more than 30% of Africa's population, which is essentially expressing just how intense this moment of uh, annexation was in terms of British conquering of African territory. The other chief colonisers were France, uh, Germany, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, and Spain, but we're not going to focus on them today because this is a very short history of the British Empire, but rest assured they were also very busy during this period. So we're going to spend the second half of this podcast thinking about how we got from 10% of the continent under direct European control, to more than 90%. How did we get from there to here? So I mentioned at the beginning that Britain hadn't been enormously focused on Africa up to this point. I talked about the blanks that they left on the maps of the inside of the landscape of Africa, and there was a general perception that Africa was almost an empty wasteland. So for Britain initial colonisation of Africa wasn't actually driven by a desire to own Africa at all. But instead, it was driven by a desire to secure trade routes to other more lucrative parts of its empire, namely India. So have either of you ever heard of the Suez Canal?
0: Yes, of course.
2: Absolutely. So it's one of the most famous episodes in uh, British imperial history. And When we think about the Suez Canal, it was opened in Egypt in 1869, and the British and French funded it. uh, And the project was essentially motivated by a desire for easier access to India and to make that access much more efficient. However, when it came to the project's conclusion, the British were keen to secure it for themselves because they were concerned about it falling into the hands of rival powers, which could disrupt the flow of trade. So Britain was keen to ensure that it had the sole rights to the Suez Canal. When the ruler of Egypt began struggling with revolts from the south, he asked for British military aid. And the British used this as an excuse to take control of Egypt in 1882. As you said earlier, Olivia, they didn't actually formally colonise it. Instead, it became what they called a protectorate. But Britain was able to establish a kind of formal control. So this first foray into annexing African territory is notable because A, it shows how gradual this process actually was. Britain had been involved in Egypt politically and economically well before this. And B, it was motivated by wanting access to other parts of its empire rather than a desire to own the land itself.
0: So clearly in the case of the Suez Canal, the competition between European nations and political rivalries was very important to ensuring that conquest was undertaken
2: in Africa. Where else on the continent do you see this similar kind of pressure? Right, absolutely. So South Africa is a really key one here. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the development of commerce and Britain wanting to extract resources from Africa. In this way, many early colonizers weren't actually British soldiers or officials. They were actually businessmen. And South Africa is a really key area to discuss this with. Have either of you heard of Cecil Rhodes?
0: Yeah, we definitely talk about Cecil Rhodes quite a bit. In fact, we have a number of recently released blogs on who he was and why his statue in Oxford is controversial. So if you're interested, you should check those out. So what can you tell me about him? Cecil Rhodes is the quintessential colonial man in that he started out from a very fairly poor family He had poor health, and he was sent to Cape Colony and ended up getting involved in diamond mining, in which he started um, blood diamond mining, meaning that he mined diamonds in order to fund insurgencies and further war. And he also had horrific business practices. Even in his own time, the newspapers referred to him as unscrupulous. But he became a millionaire by the time he was 30 and conquered vast portions of land, which displaced many indigenous tribes. He was responsible for the murderous bloodshed of many conflicts that especially use European military technology on the bodies of of Black African tribes. And on top of that, he was just himself a staunch imperialist. He came to study at Oxford for a period of time. He didn't make much of an impression on his tutors. He wasn't an academic man, but he wanted power and he wanted recognition. And he decided while he was at Oxford that the best way to get that power and recognition when you're not that athletic, when you're not that intelligent, was to simply be an imperialist, was to conquer other peoples and gain the power that way. And that's what he did. He had a dream of expanding the British Empire as much as possible, and and he did it in, in very horrific ways. And then when he died, he was incredibly hated in many parts of the world, not just in, uh, by the people he conquered, but lots of people in England didn't like him either. There were actual protests in Oxford, not today, as there are against the statue, but against him when he was given an honorary degree in 1899. They didn't want him to get this honorary degree from the university because it was validating a man who'd unleashed a wave of evil on the world. And I think what happens today is people misremember just how controversial he was for his own time, not just today. And now, for some reason, people think he's a national hero. Well, the only thing he really did was give a ton of money to England and to Oxford, and that is how he knew he could secure his legacy, because even if people hated him while he was alive, they'll remember him fondly with his wealth and diamonds after he died.
1: Yeah, and so he, most of his fortune came from blood diamonds, but he got involved in British politics, ended up being the prime minister of the Cape Colony, and he's very much responsible for the, the start of the of the very fast conquest of land in inside the African continent. So after all, Rhodesia, modern-day Zimbabwe, was named after him.
2: Absolutely. So he's a really key figure at this point, and he's a really good example of the many British industrialists and financiers uh, that were interested in Africa because it presented a new place to invest um, the money that was being made from the Industrial Revolution, and it had the potential to make money quickly. Simply put, the Industrial Revolution was generating significant amounts of excess capital in Britain, and British businessmen were looking for places to invest this money. So Cecil Rhodes is really key when we, when it comes to this conversation. So you mentioned that Rhodes was involved in diamond mining. Now, this is really key when we think about different techniques of annexing land. And Rhodes was very involved with, the, with obtaining mining concessions, from local chiefs and leaders in South Africa. Specifically, there's an incident where Rhodes was attempting to get Lobengula, the king of the Embele of matabeleland to sign away rights to his land uh, so that diamond mining could be done in the area. However, he was particularly reluctant. And essentially, there was a large discussion about the different rights and the different ways in which this could be configured and he was lobengula was assured that no men, no more than ten white men would mine in Matabele land at any one time, and that was what Rhodes was assuring him. However, this limitation was left out of the document which Lobengula eventually signed um, furthermore, the mining companies uh were signed into the document they wrote into the document that they could do anything necessary to their operations, which essentially gave them carte blanche to annex and mine in the area. When Lobengula discovered later the true effects of the concession he tried to renounce it but the British government ignored him and it was used as the method by which Britain was able to access this land and gain rights to it.
0: So what you're saying is that Cecil Rhodes tricked the king into signing a treaty by telling him it said one thing and then when it came to the actual document it said something completely different and then, of course, the European government, specifically the British government, didn't believe the king when he said that this is what was promised. And then Rhodes gained territory and all control. This sounds very similar to how things were done in Canada as well. The treaty signing process with indigenous populations was very similar in that it was said verbally, this is what it will be, but then when the document was actually signed, it was a very different
1: document. Yeah, it feels like they... They still want to justify what they are doing, they want to operate within a sort of legal framework, so they do draft legal documents, but then they still make sure that the terms are deeply unfavorable to the one signing them.
0: Yeah, the legal justification is really important, as you said, Olivia, because the other European nations uh, had to be convinced that the British had rights to that land. It wasn't really about the indigenous peoples themselves that they cared about, it was whether they could prove to other encroaching territories and other competitors from Europe whether or not they actually had validity in that space. And that came through a document that was signed or a treaty of some sort because it showed other European nations that they
2: deserved that land. Absolutely. And in this way, uh, the British were often really conscious of how their imperial activities were seen by other European powers at the time specifically in a way that mirrors the British desire to control the Suez Canal, Rhodes and the British government were really keen to create what they called the Cape to Cairo Red Line. Essentially, Rhodes dreamed of connecting Africa from the north to the south, entirely through British territory, uh, through railroads and telegraph wires, which crossed the entire African continent, which was a really big signal to other European powers of the... uh, imperial majesty of Britain itself. However, this dream, so, but the the attempt to try and link Africa in this way was far more difficult than they first thought, and it leads us back to thinking about this imperial uh, European rivalry within Africa. I mentioned earlier that Britain was far from the only European power active in Africa at this time, And the late 19th century was one of significant rivalry between various powers within Europe. We're not going to go into depth about it, but suffice to say this period leads up to the First World War, if we think about the global historical context, which was the very crystallisation of these tensions. Colonies in Africa were beginning to be perceived by various European powers as assets, which defined the balance of power in Europe. As a major European nation, having annexed land in Africa was seen as desirable, as it was a sign of your wealth and status on the European stage. This, to some extent, fueled the rush to formally colonise large swathes of Africa, and partially explains why Africa was almost fully colonised within this 30-year period. So this concept of the Cape to Cairo line was to some extent an expression of power to the other European colonising states. Rhodes himself was actively seeking to topple and undermine the rival white colonial settlers in southern Africa, namely the Dutch Boers. He ended up backing the disastrous Jameson Raid of 1895, which was designed to topple the government of the neighbouring gold-rich Transvaal Republic. Uh, But this was an event that ended up leading to the Second Boer War, in which thousands of people died. So the real crystallization of these European rivalries was the Berlin Conference, and this is often spoken about when we think about the conquest of Africa. It was a conference that took place um, from 1884 to 1885, and it was convened by the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Essentially, this meeting was where the European powers sat to discuss the future of Africa and the future of Europeans in Africa and how exactly they planned to govern it. The Berlin Conference began the process of carving up Africa, you know, the way in which we think about it now, paying no attention to local culture or ethnic groups and leaving people from the same tribe or ethnic group on separate sides of European imposed borders.
0: Yeah, it's very counterintuitive that we don't actually follow the geographic barriers in the landscape, like a large mountain range or a gigantic river. Those are barriers that make things difficult to cross. But instead of using the natural contours of the environment, you see a straight line that is literally drawn on a piece of paper and then suddenly applied to an entire geographical location.
1: Yeah, Oh, uh, yes. the straight lines that we can see in in the African continent. But I guess we can also see those quite often when you look at the the states and the territories uh, in the Americas. Because obviously there are a lot of native nations around, but the way the, the the boundaries have been carved up is as if we're
2: just using a ruler, right And this is essentially where we see the strongest idea of Terra nullius, which is the term used to describe the idea that this land belonged to no one. So obviously
0: this land was settled much earlier. Can you explain why the Europeans believed that? land without Europeans and it belonged to nobody?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, thought process, and to some extent this is rooted in the ideas I was discussing at the beginning. The ways in which we depict the globe, the inaccuracies of the Mercator map, the way in which we think about the rest of the world. Ideas of white supremacy, which were evident in many areas of society, became crystallized at this period and were used to justify and drive empire. So that was part of why, when people looked at other areas of the globe, they weren't interested in thinking about who might already be there. Ideologies of racial hierarchy were prevalent in Europe in the 19th century. Many Europeans viewed themselves as the most advanced civilization in the world, and and some saw it as their mission to enlighten and civilize people in the rest of the world. This feeling of racial superiority and responsibility was captured in a poem written in 1899, The White Man's Burden, by British poet Rudyard Kipling. In it, he implores the US to invade and colonise the Philippines, and states that it's their duty as part of the white race to rule non-white people and civilise them, helping them progress socially, politically and culturally. And this is really emblematic of uh, a general pervasive idea at the time that Africans and other uh, people in the Global South should be educated and that it was for their own good and that this kind of civilising mission should be expanded. It's almost the infantilization of people in the Global South, uh, projecting them almost like their children. So these ideas kind of encapsulate opinions that were rife in the public sphere at the time. And they can be attributed to individuals like Rhodes, who we were discussing earlier. So he is particularly infamous now for his beliefs that the, quote, Anglo-Saxon race was superior. He stated specifically that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. And that's a direct quote from him. Many inaccurate and racialized stereotypes of African peoples, which existed at the time, were then used to justify colonialism in Africa.
1: This resonates a lot with all the debates that were happening at the time around Charles Darwin's theories of evolution and how people were actually taking up those theories and applying it to the
2: humankind in general, right? Absolutely. Science was a really key part of the justification of this rhetoric. Uh, The idea of evolutionary hierarchy applied to different races Uh, And The Origin of Species, published in 1859, was really part of this conversation. And the idea was that white races were the most highly developed and black African races were the least.
0: Yeah, we talked about this on our first podcast, actually, on disease and empire quite a bit. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go back and listen to that one. It really fed into the narrative of which areas of the world were considered to be underdeveloped or more diseased and disease ridden or prone to um, infection in some cases. So that narrative is is all mixed in here with the development of like new scientific theories in the 1800s as well.
2: Absolutely. So science also played a really important part in allowing colonizers to overcome the issues of terrain that we spoke about briefly at the beginning. I got you to name all those different types of landscape that was found within Africa. Technology was one of the key ways that. European colonizers were able to access the interior of Africa. Uh, When we think about the invention of steamships, for example. So if you've ever read um, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, steamships are a really important part of that whole book. And one of the reasons for that is that in order to uh, access the interior of Africa, the best way of doing that was up rivers. Um, But you needed a shallow enough boat Uh, to be able to access some of these areas. So steamships were a really important invention. Um, Be the review heard of quinine?
0: Oh, yes, that has been all over the news lately. And just for our listeners, there is no clinically proven evidence that quinine is a treatment for COVID-19, although it is a treatment for malaria, which is why it was used by the British.
2: Yeah, so really key, because when we think about malaria, malaria was one of the... uh, most deadly diseases to uh, white colonizers at this point. Before 1860, Europeans in Africa were were likely to die at a rate of 75%. 75% of them uh, were statistically going to die on arriving in Africa. Um, but with the invention of quinine, within two years, uh, that risk fell to 8% by 1900. So it was an enormous change in the way that British colonisers were able to interact with the continent.
1: Well, wow, that's incredible. That explains why the
2: change happened so fast then. Yeah, because before then it was practically a death sentence. So thinking about science, something we actually haven't spoken a lot about today uh, is violence, which is something maybe you thought I might speak about more. Violence being a kind of inherent aspect of the suppression of people in conquest. One of the key technological aspects of this violence Uh, that was perpetrated during this conquest was the invention of the Maxim gun, which was invented by Hiram Maxim and essentially is an early form of the machine gun and allowed uh, the British and other European powers to subdue indigenous Africans with an enormous amount of bloodshed. And essentially, the invention of the Maxim gun is perhaps best summed up by Hilaire Belloc, who was a writer uh, at the time, who said, quote, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. And I suppose the best incident that really sums the impact of the Maxim gun up is General Kitchener's campaign of 1898 in the Sudan, specifically the Battle of Omdurman, which lasted only five hours. But at the end of that battle, 20 British soldiers and 20 of their Egyptian allies had died. But on the opposite side, 11,000 Sudanese had died. And that should give you an idea of the enormity of the impact of that particular piece of technology. Can you imagine
0: 11,000 people dying in five hours?
2: And also 11,000 on just one side, just because of the technological advantage? Absolutely. So while this is a really memorable and almost trite phrase from Hilaire Belloc here, um, I'm going to take the opportunity before we finish up this podcast to slightly throw a spanner in the works and disagree with him a little so certain circumstances yes the maxim gun was incredibly important and changed the outcome of of many a situation um, within Africa however as I mentioned at the beginning the only real overarching narrative of this period is one of variation so I'm gonna throw you a, a slightly contrasting story here at the end I said at the beginning of this podcast that about 90% of Africa was colonised by the end of this period. So that does allow us a little bit of Africa that was actually not conquered. And specifically, we're going to talk about Ethiopia. Ethiopia interacted uh, mostly with the Italians, and they had a treaty of friendship with the Italians. And Menelik II was the king of Ethiopia at this period. Um and the treaty of friendship that they signed, uh, again, in a way that harkens back to Rhodes and Lobengula, um, the treaty itself said different things in Italian and Amheric uh on purpose. The Italian version gave them control of Eritrea and rights to the protectorate of Ethiopia, while the Americ version uh merely said that Menelik could use Italian diplomats in his foreign policy if he wanted to. So very different documents, uh, depending on who you asked. So in a similar way, Menelik repudiated this uh, treaty in 1893. And the key bit here that changes the entire, the whole narrative from the Sudanese example that I used earlier. In contrast, Menelik began stockpiling modern European weaponry. So when Hilaire Belloc says that they don't have the Maxim gun, in this particular case, Menelik began buying enormous amounts of uh, modern European weaponry, sometimes from the Italians themselves. So that by by 1894, when the Italians began military action, Ethiopians stockpiled an enormous amount of modern technology. So this culminated in the Battle of Adwa, In uh, the first, on the first of March, 1896, Uh, 15,000 Italian troops uh, arrived in Ethiopia, and essentially they were met by nearly 100,000 Ethiopian troops with modern rifles, field guns, and Maxim guns supplied from the French. Altogether, 7,000 Italian troops and Eritrean troops were killed, 3,000 taken prisoner, and the rest fled. So it's a very different picture from uh, the Sudanese one that I told you about before. And I think it's important to remember that not all of these circumstances played out in the same way across Africa.
0: Yeah, I remember in Oxford when you gave this lecture, you showed a great image which depicts this battle. Can you talk a
2: little bit more about that? Yeah, it was a painting by an Ethiopian artist of the battlefield of Adwa. And it's this amazing, colourful depiction of the two lines of opposing forces lining up against each other. And you can really see the kind of technology aspect of it, the amount of guns, the firepower on both sides. And I think that's a really powerful, important image when we think about trying to think about different the different forms of conquest that took place in Africa at this time, the variation in responses that actually technology was used on both sides um and it wasn't simply um e- uh, Europeans conquering africans actually the Ethiopia was successful in fighting back and actually was never conquered by any european power um and I think that's a really important thing to end it on. If you're interested in seeing the painting, uh, there'll be a link attached to the reading list so you can look at it in your own time. But if you're wondering why I wanted to add in a discussion about Ethiopia and the Italian Empire at the end of a podcast about Britain and the British Empire, it's because I first saw this painting as I was wandering around the British Museum. And it's a really interesting moment of uh, British uh, cultural imperialism there. Well I think that's a
1: perfect way to conclude and that's very much what we try to do with this very brief introduction to the British Empire kind of give you some snapshots some ideas to want to look deeper to go into the museums and maybe see things with a slightly different perspective so thank you so much Harry for joining us today it was really really
2: informative and very engaging as well. Thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed myself.
0: concludes our sixth episode on the conquest of africa if you're interested in seeing the reading list that was mentioned please go to our website at www.uncomfortableoxford.com and if you want to attend any of our other events we have a number of online events currently happening which are open to the public we're also excited to announce that we just launched virtual tours of oxford which discuss these legacies of colonialism within the city and university of oxford itself You can find information about us by searching Uncomfortable Oxford or finding us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. This podcast is proudly supported by Torch, the Humanities Research Network at the University of Oxford. And the music you've been hearing is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz. See you next time.